This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, before we get into it, we have a special, a very special announcement to make. We do. And it's that we are recording an episode live on YouTube for everybody and not just Patreon people. For everyone, this episode you're listening to right now is episode 499, which means our next regularly scheduled episode is episode 500. We're going to talk about The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the first of the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson, and we'd love for you to join us uh, live on YouTube October 29th. It's this Friday. It's happening very soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, that uh, kind of sneaks up on you, doesn't yes. it? Um, it'll be October 15-ish p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, um, which is the current time that it is. <laughs> and you can bookmark the link bit.ly slash overdue 500. I'll put the link in the episode notes. It's just a link to a YouTube page that will be live when we are recording. Yeah. And I, like, I don't know if you want to tweet at overdue pod or email overdue pod gmail.com with, or with some remembrances of the show, things, things that we've done that have been particularly sick and awesome. <laughs> uh, maybe do that. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll read some, some reminiscent and reminisceries on the air. Okay. We got to do the regular episode now, but don't forget. We'll mention it at the end of this episode again, in case you forget. We sure will. Hi, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and I'm I'm scared. Pick your Everybody. jaw up off the floor. It's another podcast. Don't be scared. Come we're right deep in. Into deep into spooks over now, and I have just been scared for twenty five straight days. <laughs> just and I'm terrified. Honestly, looking forward to not being scared. Well, not being scared of like ghosts and pumpkins and stuff. I'll probably be scared of other things. Oh, come yeah. November, but. I don't can't even list all the things I'm still gonna be scared of when spooked over is over, but the odds that I will see a goblin going down. Which I'm excited yeah. about. Or at least you know he won't be on the clock. Yeah. If you see him in November. Yeah, off hours goblins seem easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mummies on their smoke breaks. <laughs> well, yeah, mummies who smoke, they gotta be careful because Guess what yeah. mummies are made out of? Yeah. It's very dry, very flammable material. <laughs> Man. I think mummies vape. Mummies definitely vape. Oh, mummies probably vape. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I try to think of a good like Egyptian king pharaoh vape name, uh-huh. why don't you tell everybody what the podcast that we're doing is about? Yeah. Um why did I wanted to say my name is Craig again? Um, I don't know, but you want you want to be seen. And it's that's true. Fair. Thank you. This is a podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. It's usually books that you have heard about, and you may have heard of this one, "Her Body and Other Parties" by Carmen Maria Machado, published in 2017. Collection of short stories by one of America's and Philadelphia's up and coming authors. Um, did you come up with one of those names? Yeah. No, I'm no. I don't think I'm gonna get there. I don't know enough. I don't know enough pharaoh names. 
I'm just I'm scrolling through Wikipedia to find the pharaoh names, and it's taken forever. <laughs> King Tutankhamun. That's pretty good. Okay, yeah, we'll uh, we'll let that one stand. Yeah, it works for me. Um, so this is our final regular entry in the month of Spooktober. This is a collection of short stories, horror, weird fiction, not like sci-fi mostly. No, but not but not necessarily not sci-fi. Yeah, there's just some some genre stuff happening in this collection. What do we need to know about Machado Andrew? Uh, yeah, like you said, she's uh, from Philadelphia. Go Birds. Uh, she's an American writer born in 1986. Um, she is the writer of uh, Her Body and Other Parties, came out in 2017. Uh, in the Dream House, came out in 2019. And many other short stories, essays, and pieces of criticism. Uh, she was originally raised in Allentown, which is just north of us. Yeah. And uh, she lives here in the city with her wife. I don't know where in the city. Uh, I don't know the neighborhood, but probably... One of the better ones. <laughs> I found a good. I found a good quote about her liking Philly, because um, what she went to American University. Yeah, bachelor's degree from American University down in D.C. American University definitely sounds like a, what a Russian spy would say <laughs> that they went to college at. Yeah, uh huh. Um, and then she earned her MFA from uh, where else? The Iowa Writers Workshop. Why are we running into so many of these people this year? I feel like we're well. We're, running into a lot of them they lately they are a a critical part of the new american fiction pipeline for reasons for reasons um but i think we have we have done i mean at this point you go there to increase the chances that you will be part of the new american canon i guess yeah like i it, think it's so. become a self-fulfilling thing at this point yeah for, you know with with all of its i'm sure that there are gatekeeping issues there but it also means that we have gotten to read some interesting authors who have come through there. So you take the good, you take the bad, you take the facts of life. Uh, she said of Philadelphia, um, how, she was asked, how does the city as a setting shape you as a writer? She said, um, she's asked in Harrisburg about writing in Pennsylvania. It's got this grim, surreal quality throughout the state. And she says, <laughs> in Philly, it's a little different. There's something about the way the history of the city is maintained. Things aren't torn down. You go downtown and the Macy's is in this crazy Wanamaker building. And there's a Walgreens in this other gorgeous building. And the anthropology is in an old society house. There's something about the way Philly pushes all this new stuff into the old stuff that feels jagged and weird. It really appeals to me as a person aesthetically and psychologically it's got a real funkiness to it and i'm in west philly so it's very gay which i love it really helps me with my work and my life <laughs> oh sure yeah no i could i could see that about west philly uh and she also worked at a cosmetic store in the king of prussia mall where i worked as a kid so is that the soap store that she worked in or is that a different place oh it, that might have been what it is it's the, it was okay, yeah, it was she, a store in the king of russia mall i don't know is before her she, she is currently uh the writer in residence at the university of pennsylvania before her writing career took off she yes worked at a soap store i always liked to i'd like to know what jobs people worked at before they yeah started doing the thing that they do now <laughs> like when you worked at Coldstone creamery and i worked at the the uh, the tortilla chip factory. Uh huh. Um, she was also an adjunct professor. I assume the job <laughs> of the soap store paid better. <laughs> Got him. But um. But um. 
Jeez. And her her influences as a writer are uh, include Ray Bradbury, Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, Kelly Link, uh, Helen Oyeyemi, and Yoko Ogawa. Sure. So a lot of a lot of names in there we know. A couple we don't. Which is mm-hmm. good to good to yeah note down possibly for next Spooktober just in case any of these people are doing spooky stuff. Huh. Yeah. One of the other um, we'll talk about some of the specific influences as we talk about some of the short stories in this collection today. Um, one of them I was interested to find was that collection, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I've been eyeing as maybe a future book we read for the show. Um, just got I, think a lot you, of- I think you wanted to do that one this year, and then I suggested Haunted Ohio instead. We're going to see how that goes. Yeah, well, you know, alternate universes. Um, but that's one of those books that has a lot of the, like, kind of like modern urban legend fairy tale folklore kind of stuff in it and there's one or two stories in this book that feel that way we'll talk about the first one the husband stitch um and the others are yeah a riff a a lot of them are like i don't know some of them are style riffs some of them are structural riffs and then some of them are just like here's a thing that she needed to put down you know sure that's fair. Um, I was reading that. I shared it with you, and I was reading this Vulture.com uh, profile of her called, what is it? Misogyny is Boring as Hell, I think, by mm-hmm. Mila Shapiro. Um, and I just hadn't clocked that Like this book came out 2017. That, that profile says that it's like two days before the Harvey Weinstein stuff broke. Mm-hmm. Like... The re, I think the reception of this book, but it was also like receiving a bunch of award nominations and like list listings, like even before it had been like released into stores. So sure, there was buzz around it, and then it hit into like a cultural moment where there's a lot of talk about what women are experiencing, what women have been experiencing, and people haven't been hearing them. Um, and so like, there's a through line for this book for me of like the, the types of stories that she was writing. And I think three or four of them had been published before it came out in various outlets. And then some of them, she just wrote for the collection, but it's Uh one of those things where like, she wasn't responding to the events in 2017 that kicked off like the modern me too movement, but it landed at that time in the same way that there's a bunch of stuff in this book that's like she's very interested in pandemic stories and like things going wrong at a macro scale that you're like well i mean i mean this is fun to read yeah so what i mean what possibly could have been happening in the years leading up to 2017 that would make people start thinking about the collapse of the imminent collapse (laughs) of society (laughs) but no it's it sometimes stuff like that happens and it seems coordinated and you're like, huh, that's a weird coincidence, but it's just like the circumstances that prompted that work or inspired that work is just kind of working on in the same way on a lot of people at the same time. Yeah. Which I, I always think that kind of thing is interesting. And then there are some people who see that and they'd start thinking like nefarious things about the cabal of people who is just like, working and they're all in cahoots to like bring powerful men or whoever down. It's like, no, sometimes people are just all seeing the same stuff and then responding to it similarly. <laughs> like it's not yeah. that, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
last stuff about her and this is this, we could we could take this into the uh book discussion after a break but so stuff i've read about her and about her work um a lot of it deals with like abuse in relationships she she has gone on the record about um abuse in lesbian relationships and and said that you know the resources for like spousal abuse relationship abuse are often targeted toward women in heterosexual relationships and and uh, so abuse in other kinds of relationships gets overlooked. Um, she's also way into body positivity in in ways that like, in an essay. So this is from that uh, Vulture piece in an essay in Guernica about the power and danger of women who take up space. She wrote that she liked to imagine herself as a queen out of a fantasy novel. I am draped in red silk and sit in a large Baroque throne crowned with a grandiose headdress, stripping gemstones that tick, tick, tick like Yahtzee dice. When I turn my head, my feet rest on snoozing bears. I am so fat. I can only leave the throne in a palanquin born aloft by 20 men i'm so fat it takes the air out of the room <laughs> and like yeah there's bo- body positivity and then there's there's that and that's like <laughs> it's like well it's it's body power is what that is yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly it's dang cool. that's cool um yeah yeah she, those yeah those jive with what is in this book the the thing that struck me from that piece and other interviews she's given to is like she because i know you're the in the dream house is explicitly about abuse in a lesbian relationship i think uh-huh. um and then like this book i think in several interviews she's like and this is something i will not be able to not think about as we do this episode she's like if men like my stories that's fine but i don't really care she's just that's, got a really fine. she 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 does not need to personally care about me like most people don't honestly. no and and it's interesting the way she talks about writing for audiences is like some writers are like i'm really interested in how people receive my stuff and whatever and she's like i don't know i'm gonna write what i'm gonna write and then like if you want to have thoughts about what i wrote like kind of just pretend i'm dead and come up with your own stuff about what i said like that's how that writing works (laughs) (laughs) um and she's given a lot of interesting quotes about like symbolism in her work and how like Yes, some of that's on purpose. And then she told some story where at a Q&A, someone was like, do you know that all your stories are in the first person? And it probably has something to do with how you're trying to give voice to the women in these stories. She's like, nope, didn't know that. Cool. Great. Thanks. <laughs> didn't know that until you said that to me. Neato. Yeah, um, that happens every time someone on Twitter like talks to us about a thing that we like some weird verbal tick or something that we say all the time. It's like, oh, great, good. Now I know that I do that, and I'll never be able to live it down. Someone called me out on saying else. on saying that's fair all the time. I'm like, I don't think I'm always correct when I say that's fair. You d- you do say that a lot. The other thing, one other thing you say a lot is correctamundo. I don't know if that's. If you're saying that as much of late, but no, just definitely historically, I, you you've been a big yep. uh, adherent to the correctamundo That's, way of life. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not I'm not upset if I say correctamundo more or less often than I ever have. You did help me break the habit of uh, if you know what I mean. I I was leaning on mm. if you know what I mean for a long time, uh, and now I just don't care if you know what I mean. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do care that we take a break before we continue. We need to rest our voices and honor some contractual obligations. So (laughs) see you on the other side. Bye. Hey, Andrew. 
Hey, Craig. Oh, it's me, Craig. It's scary yeah, season. It's, <laughs> it's spooktober, Andrew. Yeah, still for another wonderful wild week. And what's scarier than feeling like you're missing out on something? I don't know what's scarier than that. I bet you know, though. It, no, there's nothing scarier. So oh, don't miss oh, out no. on the podcast Book Dreams. Okay, I won't. It's a show for everyone who loves books and misses English class. Hosted by Julie Sternberg and Evie Hale, and Book Dreams explores all sorts of topics and, Andrew, the books that engage with them. They get into the difference between a word's origins and how we use words today. They talk about ancient gospels and the people who stake their reputations on their discovery. Andrew, don't miss out on the author interviews. Jesse Satanto okay. talking about writing their family into their fiction or Jill Santapalo on being a best-selling author and a best-selling editor. Don't miss out on Book Dreams. <laughs> it's brought to you by the Podglomerate, and new episodes run every Thursday. You can listen by subscribing to Book Dreams on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show, so you don't have to be scared. You don't have to miss out. You just got to get Book Dreams. Okay. <laughs> okay, already. Stop yelling at me. All right, I will. We're back. Feels good. It does feel good. We've we're, we've rested. We've fulfilled our aforementioned contractual obligations, and now we're here to fulfill our obligation to the listener, which is to talk yeah. about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what we said we do. Yes, I'm eight eight years ago. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll never stop. We will. It's a threat. Well, um, it, uh, I'm happy to oblige. Uh, there are eight, st- eight stories. For every eight year, every year we've done this podcast, there are eight mm-hmm. stories in this book, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, the husband stitch inventory, mothers it's Lilo Lilo and Stitch fanfic. That first one, right? Not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, wow, boy, I've been, mis- I've been misinformed about Uh-oh. what this book is about. Uh oh, row. <laughs> um, the husband stitch inventory, mothers, especially heinous. Real women have bodies. Eight. Bites, The Resident, and Difficult at Parties. Um, I believe The Husband Stitch was nominated or won a Nebula uh, when it was originally published. And Strange Horizon... Oh, no. Uh, Inventory Mothers, especially Heinous, and Eight Bites were also published elsewhere. Um, Where do you want to start, Andrew? Do you want to just like pick a story that sounds interesting well so you would i i think the one if we're, if we're gonna start somewhere it should probably be the law and order svu story but I, you had you had uh <laughs> you had said coming into this that the the conversation we'd had before that you thought would be most relevant to talking about this book was the one uh, that we had about the book uh friday black yes which was one or two spooktobers ago yeah, and so that was a another book of uh, short stories. Yeah, that was that took a sort of a societal ill. In that case, it was it was mostly capitalism, which sure. resonated with us for for reasons that should be obvious if you've listened a lot. <laughs> um, and it did it, it it took that that subject and it riffed on it in some like genre-y sort of macabre like unexpected ways and it was successful because it 
manage to like meld those two things. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious why you thought that would be the best touch point for this. I assume it's because this book also starts from societal ill and then like works outward to the creative ways of, of thinking about it and addressing it. But, but is that, I don't know. Is that accurate? I think it's the, and what I don't remember about that book and maybe you do or don't as well. Um, if there if there were one societal ill, I think there's more than one being talked about in this book. But I think one of the primary ones is misogyny, uh, or any sort of like anti woman systemic problem in racism was big in in Friday Black too as yeah. as a societal ill that was that was being taken on. But the, yeah. this one, there is like a mix of what like issues that face women. Um, most of them some form of sexism uh, as well as um, issues facing queer people though that is kind of uh, like a bullet underneath how, how it is talking about women I think for the most sure, part sure, sure, sure. Um, but for me the one of the things that stands out just like if you're looking at this if you were to lay out all eight chapters at once and see what's going on is that for the most part they function pretty differently stylistically and the so one of the ones that's really helpful to talk about that first is this story called especially heinous 272 views of law and order svu mm-hmm. i don't know what you've heard about this story already andrew mm-hmm. but structurally it is 12 seasons of SVU, and she has taken the title of each episode <laughs> and used it as a writing prompt for like a one-paragraph summary of that quote-unquote episode. So it's not, she's not actually summarizing the episode. She is like riffing on the title and coming up with some fantastical version of it. Yes. Yeah. The, okay. the narrative that she has settled on for interviews about this story is that a few years ago she had swine flu and was recovering in her living room and was like really on the edge of consciousness in and out while SVU was playing in her house. <laughs> and there is there is one episode somewhere in the middle of this story where I think Benson just has swine flu for a mm-hmm. day or something mm-hmm. um but i think she started with oh i'll take a, i like all these episode titles maybe i'll just do a thing where i try to riff on all of these episode descriptions then she jettisoned any sort of uh like allegiance to what those episodes were and just looked at the 12 seasons where they were really going by this conceit of single word titles for all of these episodes and she is laser focused on Benson, Olivia Benson, and Stabler. Is that yes, Stabler? Yeah, I don't by, know his played first. by Chris Maloney. Chris who's Maloney, a, who's, a, who's a treasure, even though Stabler is not a treasure. Sort of Jack Bowerian in his violation of civil rights. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And so the first, let me just read the first one to you. I think it'll give you a sense of where this is going to go. Season one, payback. Uh, Stabler and Benson investigate the castration and murder of a New York City cab driver. They discover that the victim had assumed the identity of another man years before because he was wanted by the police. 
In the end, Stabler discovers that the stolen identity of the man in question was also stolen, and he and Benson have to begin the investigation all over again. That night, as he tries to unsuccessfully <laughs> to sleep, uh, Stabler hears a strange noise, a deep drumming, two beats. It seems like it's coming from his basement. When he investigates the basement, it sounds like it's coming from outside. Okay. Okay, sure. And it goes... This thing now is this is this is the version of Law and Order that the story is imagining. Is is every episode its own thing, or is it a long serialized thing that is building on the story like imagined by this initial thing? It does both. So the very the very second episode is about a old. It just says the old woman couldn't bear getting dressed alone anymore, and then a few more sentences about this old woman who's. Maybe doing something nefarious, it's unclear. And then it'll it has a rhythm to it, which is really fun, where she will give you a Stabler or a Benson episode, and then will give you like two unrelated things like sophomore jinx. The second time the basketball team covers up a murder, the coach decides that he's finally had enough. <laughs> uh, Bad blood. Stabler and Benson will never forget the case where solving the crime was so much worse than the crime itself. I think my the the other podcast that you do with our friend Chris Seinfeld Triple X, which go go listen to, it's very good. It's going through Seinfeld's third season right now, and and the episodes are real bangers. Yeah. Um, my favorite part is at the end where Chris, I think, usually reads the the capsule uh, summary the, yeah was it the new york times episode yep. synopsis from like their tv guide whatever it was and it's usually one sentence with like a really fleeting <laughs> sort yep. of cursory relationship to what actually happens in the yep. episode and you critique whether or not it's true of that yes i th- i like that segment a lot and i am getting that kind of vibe from those little episodic yes snippets yeah and so like the first thing to get from this story is that she is very funny and she really is having fun making this story but that doesn't mean it's coming at the expense of like satire or it's like really kind of pitch black humor because she is also she introduces at one point that like Stabler's wife thinks she was abducted by a UFO. And over the course of several seasons, it is real. That was not. No, that didn't happen. She was assaulted and Stabler has to deal with that. Uh, Benson does start getting haunted by the ghosts of the women whose murders they haven't solved. And there are little girl ghosts with bells for eyes that eventually come to possess her. And <laughs> okay. Also, the 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 drum beat that Stabler was hearing in that first episode becomes this like heartbeat of the city of New York City. That like, there's one episode where it's like there were no rapes today, no murders, nobody was hurt, nothing ever happened, and then one guy finally stabbed someone, and the city itself breathed a sigh of relief as things <laughs> came back to normal. And so you get this like, you get these individual things that are playing with what you know to be the rhythm of an svu there's a da character well and it feels like you like even if you're not familiar with svu specifically which i i, I have yeah. probably watched like four front to back episodes of svu ever in my whole life but mm-hmm. i watch a lot of bones <laughs> and i think if you know anything about crime procedurals you can kind of pick up on the on the general like 
yeah the the cadence of things and yeah. the stock characters that they're using and and a lot of what she is critiquing by way of these little synopses and these kind of inversions of what you might expect is like the types of people whose crimes go unsolved the types of ways the, the ways that stabler solves problems that are not above board um but it's also all like a little heightened um it's all like there's one comic one where like today stabler started working out he only jogs to cases now he never takes his cop car and he's always sweaty when he gets to the (laughs) scene of the crime um but contrast that with scourge which is stabler hears it again the sound the drumming it seems to come from the break room when he goes there it sounds like it is coming from the interrogation room inside the interrogation room he hears it again he bangs his hands on the two-way mirror imitating the sound hoping to lure it to him but all is quiet as you've got this like cthulhu new york city (laughs) happening Mm -hmm. alongside you know lots of uh jokes and japes about svu and then in season four andrew Okay. Abler and Henson respond to a report of rape in Central Park. And a whole subplot takes off where these two doppelgangers <laughs> of Benson and Stabler start both being cops in in their stead, but also terrorizing Benson and Stabler. And then Benson and Stabler start terrorizing the doppelgangers. Both versions of Benson are sleeping with the DA, which is apparently a, maybe a nod to a bunch of fan fiction about Olivia Benson and the DA. Boy, I feel like this is. I mean, I don't. I don't want to. SVU has a has a fandom that I have crossed before, uh-huh. and I don't want to say anything is going to make anybody mad. But maybe this would be better than whatever it actually was. Yeah. Maybe if this was the show, it would be more. It would be better. The the th- just a thought. This is something I can't speak to, which I don't think either of us are as versed in SVU enough to say. It's like I know that there are like story beats that happen in certain episodes that will re- have like an effect on a character for like the rest of that character's existence. Even though like you're supposed to be able to just like tune in and get the you know crime of the week or whatever. But like, yeah, like I, I think there there are there are elements of that, but it is there are other procedurals where that's more a part of it. Yes, and and this is certainly dialing that up, but it's also the fact that like most of these quote unquote one hour episodes are being boiled down to three or four sentences, so the accretive effect of these characters changing over seasons of television is condensed in in the version in the way the story works. Obviously, yeah, obviously. Um, the like i guess the like takeaways from aside from stylistically how fun this is and how fun it is to randomly have the interns trying to keep track of stabler and benson summon a demon from hell and then evan gets taken to hell and then the (laughs) devil sends him back and he gets sent to pennsylvania and he goes okay whatever i'm just gonna stay here a little stuff like that that's fun the cthulhu stuff that is happening is like it is and, and the ghost stuff that's happening is I think Machado dialing up the how does Benson, this woman cop, relate to the women that are always the victims of these crimes? How do they mm-hmm. how do they follow her around? Mm-hmm. How do they literally or figuratively like become her? Stabler has to deal with the fact that he's supposed to be this family man, but he's this violent cop who brings that yeah. violent, that violence home. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's she's still honoring those like threads of the source material, but is managing to do it in this weird fiction way that is also a structural experiment. Like it is, it is not a conventional reading experience by any means. Um, so that, that was one I was like, Ooh, this is fun, but also it just keeps going. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean to, to do 12 seasons, which yeah. I want to say, okay, let me actually look this up. Cause I don't want to be, but I think that that was, I think it was like a one showrunner or that's, I well, saw an no, interview so, where she mentioned so that, but Stabler also leaves ah. in at the end of season twelve, mm-hmm. and so I think that that might also be the the line. That, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. Even though it, since then the character has come back to uh, be on a different Law and Order show called Law and Order Organized Crime, mm. and my the impression that I've gotten from people who have watched that show is that the folks who run law and order have not uh <laughs> just have not taken any opportunities to you know reflect at all on on the way that uh cops are perceived yeah. in modern society yeah uh-huh. and uh-huh. yeah okay but um, uh but yeah i just that that would be my guess as to why it's the first 12 seasons okay um she, she <laughs> after that you lose your stabler and i guess you wouldn't you wouldn't have to adhere to that but it also makes you know 12 to have done that for 12 like 20 20 22 24 yeah. episode seasons yeah. like that is that that's that feels like enough i thought i was losing it when i read that first chapter about abler and henson because she does not really <laughs> explain what's happening for a while and it it has this dis i'm already kind of disoriented by the way the story is being told because i feel like i'm like clicking through a demented wikipedia Yes. So, so a fan wiki. Yes. (laughs) And and all of a sudden, the names start changing, and it's not explained that they are evil doppelgangers for several chapters. Um, The other story that has this kind of, um, uh, like I don't know, like chunky, like little vignette, vignette structure. Um, vignette sounds like a type of pasta. It's not, but well, um, like chunk and chunky vignette sounds like a, a unpleasant salad dressing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this other story I, I quite liked a lot called Inventory, which was originally published in the Strange Horizons. It is a series of paragraph entries in what feels like a diary or log, where the narrator she is telling you about all of the people that she has had sexual encounters with. And it starts when she's a teenager and uh, as she's growing up. And it's a good example of how sex functions in the book. There's a lot of sex in this book. It's not all very sexy. Mm -hmm. It is often there to like drive plot or reveal circumstance. Um, There's like a, broad panoply of like queer relationships throughout the book and it is mostly to just like tell you who these people are but it is not often the case that you're like ooh this is a steamy story mm-hmm. I think the there's <laughs> for the husband stitch I, I believe machado said in an interview that somebody referred to the husband stitch as a work of erotica and she's like did you read it that's not what that <laughs> story is about listen let's not shame anybody no we should shame anybody who read well i'll tell you about the husband stitch in a sec All andrew right. well, I, I guess i haven't read the husband stitch Again, I do. I do think it's a missed opportunity that is not 
Lilo and Stitch fanfic. Yeah. I don't, but uh, yeah. but I'm just one I'm just one guy and <laughs> out here. Yeah, I'm just trying to live my life. <laughs> Inventory um starts innocuous enough with uh our narrator telling us about some good encounters, some bad encounters, some memorable ones, some forgettable ones. And then the twist comes where in the middle of or like following one encounter with a woman there, they find themselves watching TV. And it says, we watched as the newscaster blinked away and was replaced with a list of symptoms of the virus blossoming a state away in Northern California. When he came back, he repeated that planes were grounded, the border of the state had been closed, and the virus appeared to be isolated. When the waitress walked over, she seemed distracted. Do you have people there, I asked, and she nodded, her eyes filling with tears. I felt terrible having asked her anything. And you were shaking your head because, yes, that's what happens when you're reading this story and you're like, this is an interesting series of encounters. And then now you're telling this pandemic apocalypse story through this woman's list of sexual encounters, Um, which thematically becomes important because whatever is happening is only spread through physical contact. So it's like it becomes about people who can't help themselves from being together physically and yet that is what is causing this thing to happen um sure and you get it like in drips and drabs like she tells you that she lost her job because nobody wants quirky photography tips during an epidemic um she starts like meeting people at funerals she meets a cdc employee um she starts moving eastward and people come through and have to like wait two weeks in a car before they can come into her place. And then they bang and then they move on. Um, she, and it wraps with her alone. Um, having almost been exposed to it, not sure if, if it's going to get her or not. And she starts listing to pass the time and to remember her life. She starts like listing things like stuff she has, stuff she's done. And you find that like this log, this chapter you've been reading is her doing that for her own like sanity effectively. Um, And it's like I dug it. It's a cool story. It's again, structurally, it is not. There are many stories in the book that are like, I am a character experiencing time linearly as I go through these things. And this is one that is a little more, uh, you know, fragmented. Um, Mm. And the way that is similar to the SVU story, you get it differently. It's like I came into this book knowing that it was a bunch of weird fiction and and horror stories. And so I wasn't sure how Twilight Zone-y it would feel. I didn't quite get that vibe from a lot of the stories only because they were in this like structural thing that I don't think that a Twilight Zone can do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have thought because you've watched some of that like in the last few years, right? Like yeah, it's yeah, usually yeah. like a character goes through a plot and like that is not I how mean, all these stories function. I think a lot of the most famous episodes are that but there are also plenty of episodes where like oh a society goes through this thing sure sure you know something like that like there are a lot of the ratio of like twilight zone episodes that people think about when they think about the twilight zone to 
the number of actual the, the number of Twilight Zone episodes that exist in the world. Like there's, so, they made so many of them. It's hard to like pigeonhole them into any one thing. Certainly, you're right that if you're thinking about like time enough at last or um, the man on the plane the or whatever, man, yeah, the man on the wing of the plane. Like, yes, you are experiencing a or a horrific thing through the eyes of a of single usually misanthropic person, <laughs> but it's definitely not the only speed that the show had. Okay. But I mean, maybe it says something that th- those are the episodes that have persisted though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, cause this is like, it's always it, it, with the exception of the SVU story, every story is grounded in like one POV character. Um, but many of them are like playing with time or, occurring on a on a scale that i was not like necessarily prepared for um the husband stitch again andrew not lilo and stitch I'm sorry it's too bad i need to go check out my, uh, my <laughs> fanfic page it is uh very directly inspired by a story i think is in one of those alvin schwartz collections um about a woman with a ribbon around her neck and it has um, this, where she takes a ribbon off and her head falls off. Yes, it is. Right, nice. It is a version that of one. that story. What's fun about the husband stitch? Not all, not everything in this story is fun, but what is fun and interesting about it is the narrator uh, is very into those types of stories. So intercutting through her own life story about her marriage and her husband and her son you are getting these little like, I heard this story, you know, I remember this one story we used to tell about this girl who went to a graveyard and, you know, everybody said, if you sit on a grave, they'll pull you under. And she said, no, I won't. And then uh, it did happen to her and everyone remembers her as someone who should have known better and wanted to die and she know she wanted to live. And it's like a lot of these little fairy tale stories that crop up that she tells to the reader, but it also has this cool thing that I think might've been in. I don't, I actually don't know this, but it's got these little directions that if you were to read the story, you're supposed to honor them or, or they're in parentheses. And this is the one at the beginning. If you mm-hmm. read this story out loud, please use the following voices. Me as a child, high pitched, forgettable as a woman, the same, the boy who will grow into a man and be my spouse, robust with serendipity. My father, kind, booming like your father or the man you wish was your father. My son, as a small child, gentle, sounding with the faintest of lisps, as a man, like my husband, all other women, interchangeable with my own. And then later in the book, as the story becomes a little more intense, uh, there's a part where... So she, as a teenager, becomes attracted to this guy they start fooling around. She's got a green ribbon around her neck and he wants to know what's up with it. And she's like, Nope, sure. you can't not allow. Mm-hmm. I have a secret, but she doesn't even say it like that, but she's just like, no, you can't know. Don't touch it. It's fine. And he definitely wants more than that. Yep. And that's the, you know, a thing in their relationship forever. And, uh, during, so- I don't remember which, part in the story where he is like clearly wants more from her and he is saying like a wife should have no secrets um the parentheses instruction for the reader is if you are reading the story out loud prepare a soda can full of pennies when you arrive at this moment shake it loudly in the face of the people closest to you observe their expression of startled fear and then betrayal notice how they never look at you exactly the same way for the rest of your days 
and it's this like <laughs> she weaves sure. that she weaves that thing into the narrator telling you how she's feeling about her story which is really cool um and the arc of this story writ large is that she has a son with this guy and she wants her son to grow up and be a good person and not a bad guy yeah and overall it seems like that's gonna happen um but then by the end of the story she you know her her son is like moving out he's grown up he's gonna go off to college and and marry his girlfriend or something and so her and her husband start having sex all over the house to like celebrate the house being empty and he's like hey i do need to like know what's up with the ribbon though Mm-hmm. And she finally is like, after all that, she's kind of like upset about it, but I guess she's going to give in. And th- she says, I look at the face of my husband, the beginning and end of his desires all etched there. He is not a bad man. And that I realize suddenly is the root of my hurt. He is not a bad man at all. To describe him as evil or wicked or corrupted would do a deep disservice to him. And yet, do you want to touch the ribbon after these many years? Is that what you want of me? Um, he says, Yes. And then she pulls the ribbon and her head falls off. And oh, so it's not even like a different thing that happens when she takes the ribbon off. No, her head definitely falls off. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's like this, it's this indictment of, I don't know, like the story keeps feeling like a shoe is going to drop where he becomes like incredibly abusive to her or overtly terrible to her and it's just he just once he just wants to know what the thing with the ribbon is it's just more that he just cannot handle that there is a thing about her that he's not allowed to know or that there's a thing she has asked him that he is not allowed to have control over and she just succumbs to it and that's its own kind of tragic horrible ending yeah, no, I, I I get that. I mean, I, I I with stories like that, I only, I can only ever think like, what what were the ways around this? I know I know that the story, you know, I know that the story is not. If you're like, if you're just extrapolating, like, what? How could we have done this? Well, no, just like I, I know that this the point of the story is not how could these people have communicated better to avoid the situation where the woman's head has come off. Yeah, but that's always where my brain goes. Is just like, could she not have like every Christmas mm. they knew each other? Stocking stuffer is a book with that short story with the with the woman <laughs> where the ribbon is tying her head on. <laughs> Sure. Or like, just are there not like maybe she could have satisfied his curiosity without whipping her head off? It's it's like if I went up to you and you just like had this knife that you carried around with you all the time, uh-huh. and I was like, Craig, what's that? What's that knife for? And you were like, No, hush, hush, my pet. I'll tell you. I'll. I, I don't want to tell you. You can never know. And then. We form a business together and we, we are, we continue to be good friends and business partners for years and years. And we have a very productive relationship and there are like strangers who come up to us and say that the, the dumb, stupid <laughs> idiot stuff that we do and say <laughs> means a lot to them. Uh huh. And we, and we just, this enterprise goes on and on, but you still like, 
every time we record an episode of our podcast, which is what the in, in this hypothetical universe we've started a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you every time we record, like one of your hands is just like flipping this knife open and closed like the whole time. Yeah. At, at every podcast we record for eight years. Yeah. And then we are like celebrating, say, our five hundredth episode. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I go up to you and I say, Craig, this has been this has been wonderful. I would never I I would do it again in a minute, or you're like a brother to me. Yeah. But I need to know what the knife do. Uh-huh. And then you're like, well, you need to know what this knife does. And then you stab yourself in the heart with the knife and you die. <laughs> and that's like, is there not, could there not have been another way to tell me what the knife do? You don't need to show me. I know show don't tell is a thing in storytelling, but I mean, you know, your head's going to fall off. Just like tell him the, the thing about the head. Don't kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're You got a point, Andrew. You got a point. I do have a point. I will never tell you about my knife. Take off. <laughs> I do want to mention. I almost, I almost had you. you did. Wow, that was a really good try. <laughs> um, the thing I, I, I'm now remembering, like, there's the middle part of this story where she's like taking art classes or something to to like fill her days at one point in the story, and she encounters other like women, and one of them is a nude model in the class, and. They also have ribbons. They're not always around their necks, but just other women have them. And this is maybe a thing that I don't know the original story well. I think this is probably an invention of Machado's that like making it a a definition of what it is to be a woman is to have one of these ribbons somewhere. And that is a thing that men can never know about. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's like, that is what a lot of these stories are interested in is like here's an experience of a woman and here's how it relates in some supernatural or other horrific or some sort of like systemic way to all the other women in the story usually that's how that goes um it's not just about why does craig have a knife and he won't tell andrew um, <laughs> why won't you though the there are there are four or five other stories in the book we don't need to talk about them all i just want to shout out one more i think um because like the, some of them are like the resident is this riff on uh like 19th century gothic fiction and like kind of mad woman in the attic stuff there's a story about two mothers who may or may not have a kid and how that works there's a story about a woman who has experienced uh, some sort of trauma and the only way that she can process it is to magically hear the trauma of people in porn. Um, That's a a pretty good close. That's the last story in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. But Real Women Have Bodies is like another really standout story in the book. And so I'll just want to close our discussion with that one. Sure. Um, It, I think, some of the elements of working a low-wage retail job uh, at the King of Prussia Mall have informed this story <laughs> uh, where our narrator is working at a dress store named uh, Glam and she doesn't love it, but she doesn't hate it. Her coworker Natalie does kind of hate it. They think that their boss uh, is kind of like, you know, a stereotypical older washed up fashion lady who just doesn't get it um and the narrator is quite taken with this woman petra who whose mother makes a lot of the dresses that they sell 
and Petra comes by and like delivers them regularly. Mm-hmm. Now, Petra is not stereotypically feminine. She's described as wearing like a baseball cap with short hair and combat boots. And like that is supposed to signify the things that you might stereotypically think it signifies. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and then we get a new section of the story and it says the first report started at the height of the recession. I was like, what? Oh. Women have started disappearing. And the way that they disappear is that they kind of fade into invisibility, like near invisibility and like almost etherealness. Like they can't touch stuff. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that she chose to introduce how this works by telling us about a viral video of a landlord whose tenant hasn't paid rent in a while and went missing. So he goes through her house, like mocking her apartment on a video. And then she's like ghostly in there, like nude, but trying to cover herself up, but she can't because she's like see-through. Okay. And I was like, huh, a paragraph where a dirtbag landlord is coming in to evict his ghost woman tenant is doing a lot of work, <laughs> Machado. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's just a lot of interesting layers happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this, like, some sort of unexplained thing that is happening in the world where uh, certain women are just disappearing over the course of several weeks and then you never really see them again but they might still exist which is people are confused by uh (laughs) the narrator and petra start up a relationship they go to the motel that petra's mom also happens petra's mom is an entrepreneur and Uh, runs apparently a midnight dressmaking business while also running a seedy motel (laughs) um and they have sex and then petra's like hey or I don't know if they have sex that time. They might have sex another time. But anyway, Petra's like, hey, do you want to... Uh... They talk about the job and the dresses. And the narrator's like, I don't really like how some of the people treat the dresses. It seems kind of undignified. Natalie in particular is really like condescending and just like shoves them on the racks and doesn't really care about them. And Petra's like, oh, so you get it. And that's like, and the narrator is like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> she shows her to the dress shop, and in the dress shop, you see Petra's mom sewing, literally sewing one of like the ghost ladies into the dresses. Uh huh. Like sewing their ghostly selves into the dresses. So then, when you sell, the so like dre- that they're part of the dresses, or so they are like wearing the dresses. No, so that they're like part of the dresses. Ghost dresses. They're ghost dresses. These women who have disappeared, and it is implied through the women that we see or hear about disappearing that they are not very traditionally feminine women. Okay. Are being rendered invisible invisible by forces in the universe, and then to find a way to cling to existence, they are clinging to images of woman traditional womanhood femininity femininity. yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. um so we get this arc of petra and the narrator having a relationship and then 
Petra starts fading. We get the similar thing from the inventory story where like there's little snippets of like, well, maybe I should go to college before they close all the universities due to under enrollment and low tax <laughs> revenue or whatever. And maybe some of the ghost ladies are like engaging in some sort of uh, internet terrorism. They seem to be some of them are attaching themselves to servers and voting machines. It's huh. like uh, a, a news anchor fades away like live on television uh, and Petra eventually disappears like her arc is pretty sad and it ends with the narrator breaking back into the clothing store that she had quit trying to rip open the dresses so that the ghost ladies will leave and they kind of don't leave they just stand there Mm -hmm. and then she's like taken away by the cops um and yeah i don't know it's very that is like that feels pretty Twilight Zone-y in, in structure. It's this like mysterious thing that's happening to people. Um, it's still really centered on like two or three characters that we get to learn about. I, I think overall Machado is like a little less interested in populating her stories with richer characters because she's really focused on the conceit and the circumstance and like the hook of the story. And this is one that has like a little bit more depth to who those people are. Um, But I think there's like other companions to this idea of like what is causing these women to disappear. And there's no explanation in this story, but I don't know. I I like that one. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. The one I don't really have, uh, a reference point to talk about even though I think it's probably one that Machado worked all really hard on and speaks to her own experience. How do you, how can you quantify the ones that she worked well, really hard no, on versus this, the ones that she that, may, I phrased that wrong. That's on. a good point. Call me out on that. Uh, the okay. one that speaks most maybe to her experience is this one called The Resident which is okay. about a writer going to an artist residency and like that's the one I think said earlier has to do with like tropes of like mad woman in the attic stuff. Sure. Um, That one is a big sprawling Gothic story that is very interesting and has some fun trappings of that style of literature. Um, What if the horror is that you will always be applying to residencies forever? That's it's more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Kind Um, of. Yeah, it's it's this uh, it's a fun book. It's uh, I was like I, I always like a short story collection because if the one that you're reading isn't working for you, guess what? There's another one right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Instead and, of having to read uh, 400 pages of a book that is not working for you, which is ever a thing that we've had to do for this show. <laughs> well, and this one is laid out smartly. Like the the real will women real women have bodies. Uh, is juxtaposed with one about like uh, women undergoing gastric bypass surgery and like the way that the first one being like, how does society make women disappear uh, in relation to their bodies? And this, this like companion story is about like women enforcing that themselves on each other. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really, it's a well curated group, but it also, the stylistic swings I think will get you through. You're not going to read, you're not reading eight of the same type of thing, which is really what stood out to me and probably 
is what has elevated this book in relation to other short story collections that might be playing in the same space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's all I got, Andrew. Um, you got any more thoughts about working in a mall? No, I never. I only ever worked adjacent to a mall. I you ever go trick or treating in, in a mall? No, I never went trick or treating in a mall. I did like. I always was trying to get a job at the Walden Books in the mall, but mm. no, I worked. I worked at the McDonald's in front of the mall, and uh. then I worked at the Office Max that shared a parking lot with the mall. But that you know, it was elusive. It was an oasis in the in the desert. I I could never quite get to the promised land <laughs> yeah you could go into the fully lit mall in costume and the some of the stores would put a little pumpkin in their front window and that's how you knew you could go in there and get some candy while the mall was open mm-hmm. i mean that's that's a nice it was the thing about our neighborhood right now is that like we buy some candy just in case but we get like two trick-or-treaters on how i don't know what's gonna happen in our neighborhood we'll see yeah like I'm this ready. is your first year in the in the new place so i don't know but like I, I don't know. It, it's nice to for, for parents to know that there's a place that they can go where there will be active trick or treating. And I don't like. There's probably once we're like actually in the school system, like there's probably yeah. more stuff that we'll be aware of. But just like ambient trick or treating, like I guess we'll go over to the place on 13th Street with their where they're real horny for Christmas <laughs> and just like hope that we can work outward from that. Yeah, I just don't, I, I do, there is some social anxiety around like, well, I don't want to not be available to give kids candy, but like kids don't call ahead of time. No, you never, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I do know what's going to happen on this here podcast. Andrew, we got two episodes coming up worth knowing about. We're going to close out Spooktober with a bonus episode recorded on Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, Haunted Ohio uh, Ghastly Tales from the Buckeye State by Chris Ooh. Woodyard. That's going to be Sunday. We're recording it Sunday on Halloween. Our Patreon supporters at uh, the correct tier can can join us for that recording. And then all the of correct our, tier. All, all, all the rest of you are on the wrong tier. No, everyone gets it early, <laughs> but the, the certain tiers where you get it, you get to join us. But everyone can join us. Maybe I should have mentioned this at the top of this episode. You should, yeah, we should maybe. <laughs> As we said oh, we at the top of the episode, uh, you can join us on Friday, October 29th for big old episode 500. We're going to stream it on YouTube. You could be there. Just go. What, and, and what are we going to read? Oh, we're going to read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stieg Larson. Not technically Spooktober. But we're recording it then because it has to drop on Monday. Because it has to drop on that Monday. And so, so yeah, we, we've done the Patreon bonus recording things before. They've always been very fun. I don't know what one that is open to the general public is going to be like. Yep. So, you know, we will uh, we'll probably have things a little more polished, hopefully, on our end. And what then, does like, that the mean? chat, I don't know what it's going to have. Like, we'll probably, like, I was thinking we'd do, like, the actual, like, music fade and we'd maybe have some visual aids prepared. I don't know. Whoa. I haven't read the book yet. But, uh, yeah. Um, it's going to be it's gonna be an adventure for all of us, is again, what I'm saying. It's, it's the closest thing we've done to a live show in, yeah. like, fully two and a half years. So. 
The URL for that, I'll put it in the episode description, bit.ly slash overdue 500, bit.ly slash overdue 500. That'll just take you to a YouTube link that you can bookmark and open on Friday the 29th. And if you miss it, that's okay. You can listen to the episode next week on uh, Monday, the 1st of November. Yep. Yep. That's it, Andrew. That's all I got. All right, right, everybody. Thank you for spooking with us so far in Spooktober. And until we see you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.